hello. Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network Podcast. My name is Thomas Valentine. Today's talk is going to be by Vince Cullen. We had an academy talk this last Sunday. I didn't see many of you there, so you should definitely come check it out next time. We do it the first Sunday of every month. It's at 1 p.m. Pacific time. It's a live Dharma talk, lasts about 30 minutes. You can log in with Zoom, either on your phone or tablet, laptop. And then, uh, yeah, it's about 30 minutes and there's questions and answers at the end. It's a great chance to ask a Dharma teacher any Buddhist-related or recovery-related questions that you have. Okay, hope to see you there next time. So let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about our guest teacher. Uh, Vince Cullen has been associated with Wat Tem Krabok Monastery in Thailand and Buddhist-oriented alcohol and drug recovery since 1998. Vince founded the Fifth Precept Mindfulness for Recovery Group and teaches Hungry Ghost Recovery Retreats internationally. He has held appointments as Buddhist prison chaplain at both male and female prisons in the UK. Vince recently purchased a pub in Ireland and is turning it into a residential meditation center. His websites are fifthprecept.org and hungryghostretreats.org. Thank you for being here with us today, Vince. I'll go ahead and unmute you. Thank you very much, Thomas. Uh, thanks to you. Thanks to BRN. Thanks to everyone at BRN. Thanks to, to Robin, part of the technical team. I'm just going to start um, this evening's talk by posting a reference, if I can. And it's a reference to a poem that uh, we'll be exploring um, uh, this evening. This evening's session should last uh, 30 to 30 minutes to 35 minutes, uh, depending on uh, questions and answers. Um, but I'd like to welcome you all uh, to this talk um, uh, from Nalagiri House, which indeed was a, a pub in, in uh, Tipperary in Ireland, and hopefully at some unknown point in the future, it will be a residential mindfulness centre. But I'd like to start today's session with a poem. Um, as I say, I've posted a link in the comments should anyone wish to, to look this poem up. Um, but first, I'd like to put this poem into context. Um, I should say that I was asked, and I had the great pleasure and privilege recently, of celebrating the marriage of two close friends here in Ireland. During the ceremony, there was some meditation, there was the exchange of vows and rings, there was a tying of hands. There were Mudita gratitude blessings for everyone. And there were two thoughtfully selected poems. And one of these poems was this version that I'm going to read of The Guest House by Rumi. And this version contains the phrase, the pearl in sorrow's hand, which inspired tonight's reflection. So before our guided meditation, I'd like to begin by sharing this poem with you. Darling, the body is a guest house. Every morning, someone new arrives. Don't say, oh, another weight around my neck, or your guests will fly back to nothingness. 
Whatever enters your heart is a guest from the invisible world. Entertain it well. Every day and every moment, a thought comes like an honored guest into your heart. My soul regard each thought as a person, for every person's value, value is in the thought that they hold. If a sorrowful thought stands in the way, it is also preparing the way for joy. It furiously sweeps your house clean in order that some new joy may appear from the source. It scatters the withered leaves from the bough of the heart in order that fresh green leaves might grow. It uproots old joy so that new joy may enter from beyond. Sorrow pulls up the rotten root that was veiled from sight. Whatever sorrow takes, takes away or causes the heart to shed, it puts something better in its place, especially for one who is certain that sorrow is the servant of the intuitive. Without the frown of clouds and lightning, the vines would be burned by the smiling sun. Both good and bad luck become guests in your heart, like planets traveling from sign to sign. When something transits your sign, adapt yourself and be as harmonious as its ruling sign, so that when it rejoins the moon, it will speak kindly to the Lord of the heart. Whenever sorrow comes again, meet it with... Arm and do not deprive me of its good. Lord, remind me to be thankful. Let me feel no regret if its benefit passes away. And if the pearl is not in sorrow's hand, let it go and still be pleased. Increase your sweet practice. Your practice will benefit you at another time. Someday your need will be suddenly fulfilled. We'll explore that poem in a little bit more detail after our meditation. And the meditation I'd like to offer you tonight is just a very simple serenity breath meditation. A meditation to cultivate a sense of serenity, an intentional cultivation of that state of being calm, of being peaceful, and of being untroubled. The early Pali texts tell us that, that our practice should be an embodied practice. Those ancient texts encourage us to develop an embodied intentionality, an intentionality to skillfully move away from whatever it is that causes us stress and suffering, to realize our heart's desire to skillfully move towards the end of stress and suffering. So we begin our meditation perhaps by letting our eyes gently close if that feels safe for you, if it's, if it's safe for you to do so. Sit with your back straight, your feet on the floor. As I said, may perhaps let your eyes gently close. For the next 10 minutes, you're invited to cultivate and to practice calm and pleasant abiding in the here and now. For the next 10 minutes, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to be done. And there's certainly no one special to be or to become. Let your face relax. Let your jaw be soft. Let your shoulders drop back to open up the heart area. And let your arms and your hands rest easily. Thank <laughs> you. 
we might start this practice by taking a very deep, full breath in. And a very long, slow breath out. Just feeling the breath in the whole body. And perhaps a second time, taking a very full, deep in-breath. And a very long, slow out-breath. And then letting the breath settle down naturally. The instructions for this serenity meditation are very simple. The Buddha said, breathing in, we should know that we're breathing in. And breathing out, we should know that we're breathing out. So we just bring this awareness, this full awareness to the experience of breathing. Breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. is inevitable that after a period of time our, our awareness will be taken away it will be taken away by a physical sensation or a sound a discursive thought a smell a taste we'll lose sight of our object of meditation the breath when we notice that we've lost sight of the breath, we smile, we make a, a very friendly, non-judgmental note of not breath. And we return our full awareness to this magical process of breathing. We might bring a gratitude, a joy and appreciation. For each breath, for each in-breath, and each out-breath. Breathing 
breathing in, I notice I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I notice I'm breathing out. Our whole practice is grounded on loving kindness, of universal friendliness. So you're encouraged to have a, a smile in your mind and a smile in your heart, and even just like all the best Buddha statues, a small smile on your face. minute or two I shall ring the bell three times to bring our period of meditation to a close and I would invite you to maintain your sitting posture maintain your awareness of breath maintain your meditation until you, at least you hear the third bell and in this very small way we might start to loosen the grip of our habitual need to move away from what we perceive to be uncomfortable, to move towards what we perceive might be more comfortable. But in these two minutes, you maybe fully focus on the in-breath, with joy and appreciation and fully focus on the out breath with joy and appreciation.
thank you all. The sorrow in the guest house poem intrigues me. How does sorrow as an everyday visitor relate to dukkha or suffering or stress in a Buddhist context? Particularly how does sorrow, dukkha or suffering or stress play itself out in my life and the lives of those around me? In the early Pali texts, the term satcha, uh, S-A-J-J-A, in fact, I'll type that in for you. The term satcha, S-A-J-J-O or S-A-C-C-A, has a very broad meaning of, um, of truth or truthfulness. Um, so the, the term satcha is often used to describe something as, as a truth or something to be true. Uh, but in a wider sense, satcha can also be a recognition or realization of what is true. In terms of stress and suffering, there's an ancient talk that goes along the lines of, now what, friends, is the noble satcha or noble truth of stress? Birth is stressful. Illness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. So birth, sickness, old age and death are all stressful, all unavoidable, undeniably stressful. Recently, I visited, visited one of my favorite aunts here in Ireland. She has advanced dementia, so she doesn't really know who anyone is. And she must have all of her personal needs provided for her. She was being cared for by her my uncle, her 82-year-old husband, is surrounded and supported by a large and loving family, taking care of her every need. It was inspiring for me to see her held in so much love. But equally, it was sad and sorrowful to see a once vibrant wife, mother, grandmother, aunt and good friend as a mere shadow, almost unrecognizable, of her former self. The truth of satcha, the truth or satcha of birth, sickness, old age and death is the usual description of universal suffering given by, the, given by the Buddha. But I sometimes forget that the full definition is much more than that, quite literally much more than that. The complete explanation goes along the lines. Now, what, dear friends, is the noble satcha or noble truth of stress? Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from what is loved is stressful. Not getting what one wants is stressful. And as um, Oscar Wilde pointed out, sometimes getting what one does want is also stressful. So sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Again, these are not really avoidable. To be human is to experience physical and emotional discomforts. Can I experience these physical and emotional distresses without be becoming overwhelmed by them? 
can I see the pearl in sorrow's hand in times of crisis? This is the practice. This is the challenge. This is the task at hand. Association with the unbeloved distressful. Separation from the love distressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. For my aunt, the pearls, pearl in sorrow's hand might be the care and support holding her in her vulnerability. For her immediate family, the pearl in sorrow's hand might be the unconditional love and mutual support that they give to her. As I said, Satya can be a recognition or realization of what is true. We are all brothers and sisters in the fellowship of those who are going to get old, going to get sick, and are going to die. Of course, we can't always see the pearl in sorrow's hand. And indeed, I would suggest, as does Rumi's poem, that sometimes sorrow arrives without a pearl. However, from a Buddhist perspective, one might say that sorrow never arrives empty-handed. At the very least, it offers us the opportunity to surrender to what is, perhaps a surrender to reality of impermanence or a surrender to the, to the reality of unavoidable stress. 22 years ago, when I was at my lowest point, overwhelmed with sadness and self-loathing, as I drank my last beer, I was oblivious to the gift that was being offered to me. The pearl in sorrow's hand was the chance of sobriety the chance to see things to see things as they really are at that time i said to satya a different type of satya a satya as a truthful intention never to take alcohol or other drugs again so satya might be akin to a surrender satya as an embodied intentionality as a positive wholesome skillful recognition of what it is to be human Satya is a realization and a surrender to the truth of the way things really are. My daily life is inconstant, it's unpredictable, it's uncertain, it's woven together with impermanence. I cannot control what I get, I cannot control what I don't get. Whether I like it or not, this is my life. To argue with impermanence and uncertainty is to argue with the inarguable. I'd like to end my talk this evening again with a closing verse from Rumi's poem. And if the pearl is not in sorrow's hand, let it go and still be pleased. Increase your sweet practice. Your practice will benefit you at another time. Someday your need will be suddenly fulfilled. So maybe that's what we all have to do, whether we see the, the pearl in sorrow's hand or not. With wise action and wise effort, we should increase our sweet practice. And then I hope, friends, that someday we will see things as they really are. And all of our genuine needs will be truth, will be suddenly fulfilled. Thank you. So I think uh, Thomas is going to keep an eye on questions. If anyone has any thoughts around sorrow and the, and its possible benefits or gifts, whether that gift is a pearl 
or whether that gift is our three jewels. Uh, feel free to type in your questions into the chat field or raise your hand. Um, or if you have any comments, go ahead and send in comments. And we'll just sit for a little bit and wait. And maybe I'll, um, I'll explore a bit more this idea of, of sorrow never arriving empty-handed. Sorrow always has something to teach us. And not just sorrow, of course. We can replace the word sorrow with despair, with pain, with lamentation, with grief. They all have something to offer us, even if it's just, just that realization that this is what being human is all about. From the moment we're born, we're all on a single unstoppable trajectory with only one destination. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are in the world, we share that destination. And for me, the pearl in, sor in the sorrow's hand or the pearl in death's hand is to remember to live. But that may be different for others. Uh, Vince, we had a question come in from, uh, from Robin. Uh, it's amazing how often suffering results in blame for me. What's the best way to work with blame within a Buddhist context? It's a great question. I don't know how to answer it, but it's a great question. Uh, from a personal point of view, uh, whenever blame arises... Uh, same with for me with anger. If blame or blame is one of these emotions that occasionally arises for me, and um, and as soon as it arises, I, I know there's something wrong. I have to stop and look at myself. Um, in the same way as when anger arises, I have to stop and look at myself. Um, so I'm not sure, Robin, in what context you're saying that, that the blame arises, um, but certainly. I would say uh, suffering suffering often brings uh, a discomfort that you're not likely to find origins within yourself, that mm -hmm. mostly you go outwards for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been working with forgiveness, but I find that it still seems to be one of the first things to arise when, um, so I, I think that, I need to identify why something is causing me suffering, and that is within myself. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's uh, I've been working with this for years, but it's still it's coming up. It's coming up right now. I mean, in this week, this very week, mm -hmm. um, finding that I'm finding the source of my problems to be outside of myself instead of within myself. And yeah, uh, and you know, I. I'm in a similar situation where I'm being, I, I might say that I'm being negatively impacted by external forces uh, to myself, which would, in a different lifetime, when I was still drinking, would lead to a lot of anger, 
and a lot of blame and an awful lot of suffering. Now, some of those external forces, some of those external um, individuals um, have acted unskillfully, um, uh, having, having, you know, leading to this detrimental effect, you know, directly on myself. Um, so th- there's a there's a, a place, a rightful place for appropriate anger, when uh, and I, you know, a time and a place for appropriate anger f- uh, in my situation will arise soon, uh, where anger will be um, or displeasure. Uh, will be uh, ex- explored in a, a respectful way. This, you know, things are not, not right. Blame is, is for me, I, I could say that my, my current situation is all of someone else's fault. It's not my fault at all. Um, but, I, you know, I did... I have to look, I have to keep peeling away the, the layers of my own um, contributions to, to where where I am at the moment. Uh, nothing arises in independence. Everything is a result of causes and conditions. So I have to deconstruct that and, um, and accept that some people do not act in my best interest. They act in their own their own best interest or that what they believe to be their own best interest at the cost of other people and it's hard it's hard to work with and and as you say yeah you know it's a it's an integral part of forgiveness practice um is to let go of that blame to 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 let go of that anger and to let go of that suffering i don't know if that helps robin it's helpful thank you thank you So the floor is open. If anyone has any thoughts, any comments, any questions, comments would be as as much welcome as questions. Excuse me. As was alluded to by um, Thomas in his introduction, um, I acquired a public house. Um, uh, it was a bar. It was originally a pub called the Half Door Pub, and then it became a, a pub restaurant called um, the Hilltop uh, property in Tipperary, uh, Tipperary County, not Tipperary Town, Tipperary County in uh, in Ireland. And since 2016, I've been trying to convert the pub into a residential mindfulness centre that serves mindfulness and not beer, the pub with no beer. And it's proving to be a very difficult transition. And here we are in 2019, and I have less of the house standing, less of the building standing than I did four years ago. And... It can be, it is painful, it's distressing um, and sorrowful at times. Uh, but it has a, there is a pearl there that, that when, the, when the work is complete, 
there'll be many there'll be many people that benefit from it and perhaps the way things are at the moment the delays and the uh, mistakes um, will ultimately lead to a much cleaner clearer um, place for people to come and be in community I will keep everyone posted uh, when um, when Nalagiri House is ready to to welcome guests. When, it, when Nalagiri House becomes a guest house, um, and for those who are not familiar with Nalagiri, Nalagiri was the wild, drunken elephant sent to kill the Buddha, and the Buddha brought this wild, drunken elephant to her knees just with loving kindness and that's what we hope to do at Nalagiri House to tame the wild elephant thank you so much Vince for that beautiful talk a lot of great wisdom packed in there next month we have Mary Stankovich coming on to the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy. It'll be the first Sunday of the month, which is April 6th. So yeah, if you want to join us, mark it on your calendar for April 6th. It's 1 p.m. Pacific time. And you just use the Zoom link that you can find at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy. We practice the act of generosity of Donna. If this talk meant something to you today, donate what you feel it meant to you, what you feel like you can. Um, the donations go to the teacher as well as to Buddhist Recovery Network Academy. Um, and you can give at buddhistrecovery.org forward slash donate also we have our upcoming Buddhist Recovery Summit it's going to be an international summit here in Lacey, Washington so if you are you know staying tuned hoping for more information more information will come soon um, we're just about to update the website and get registration open. So just keep checking BuddhistRecovery.org for more information. And that is all we have for you today. I love you all. May we all find what brings us peace and share that peace with our communities. <laughs> <laughs>